little girl bowed her head to pray with her family at dinner one evening and she was just overwhelmed with how much God loved the world and she said, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving everyone in the world. I don't know how you do it. I only have four people in my home. I can't never do it. <laughs> and uh, I leaned over to Gordon when we were uh, just singing that hymn. I was like, wow, how amazing this is going to be. Uh, he struggled with the loss of his dad a few years ago. And, and I did the same. And we talk off and on about how things are going for our dads now. And uh, I said, how wonderful it's going to be to sing the text of those hymns with our dads someday. But then I thought, wow, what about the company of God's people? We're enjoying a little bit of that heaven every week here. And uh, what a great, great time of rejoicing that is for us. Um, and then we'll do that arm in arm around the throne. Maybe today. Maybe before I say... <laughs> Job chapter 1. All right. You can tell I do believe in the doctrine of imminency at any moment. I'm always hoping that we hear the trumpet before... We draw our next breath. Nathan, it's an honor to have you today. It's great to see you, brother. Can't wait to give you a big hug after church. Um, there's reasons why Pastor Mike had to be a bit broad in his introduction of Nathan earlier. Uh, we have saints from around the world who minister in places that are not friendly to the gospel. And uh, since we're live, uh, and some people do watch our morning services across the world, we just want to as wise as we possibly can. It's an honor to see you. And please give our life, our, our love to your wife and your family. Look forward to fellowshipping with you today. Job chapter 1 and verse 6. Thank you, Pastor Mike, for reading this earlier. I'd like to speak to you this morning, preach to you this morning, some spiritual and practical wisdom observations of God's people in crisis. God's people endure calamity. What's God's wisdom for us? So all of us are certainly included every week, but exclusively included this morning because all of us are enduring some type of difficulty to some degree today. We've already established that calamity will come to each of us. And it comes at the most unsuspecting moments at times. We've also established that Job would have been the last person on earth that anyone would have suspected to endure the calamity that he did. Nevertheless, the inevitability of difficulty strikes him at an unsuspecting moment, and it can strike you too. It can strike all of us. Here's what we do know from what we read. This whole section that we've already studied and we have read this morning of the book of Job is really divided up into four clear sections. I'd like to identify those sections for you today to help us better understand this portion of wisdom scripture. We've already preached on the first section, which is really verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. And each one of these sections is announced, if you will, by a familiar phrase or two. In verse 1 it says, there was a man. There was a man. Now jump down to verse number 6 that we read this morning 
which introduces the second scene, if you will. Now there was a day. Go down to verse 13 with me. It says the same thing, which announces yet the next scene. Now there was a day. If you go to chapter 2 and verse 1, you'll see a very familiar phrase again. Now there was a day. These four sections of the first part of Job are like four acts of a play with various scenes to flow naturally within each act. While there may be four acts of a play, there are really only two major scenes where most of the action takes place. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to be a part of some uh, theatrical and some musical productions. There was a particular part of stage scenery that really amazed me the most. It was amazing to me all the time what stage, people who staged the platform, their artistry, their creativity was just breathtaking to me. But there was one particular and I don't even know if it's still called this today. Those of you that's still involved in the arts of putting on plays and so forth, you can, uh, you can chuckle or you can even text me now and tell me what it's called today. But back in the day, it was called a scrim. A scrim was a screen. Right? So if you were on front stage singing a solo or speaking a soliloquy, right, there could be a backdrop that was painted that looked like a village, and you were walking up and down the street singing in a village. When your solo or your soliloquy was done, right, the cameras would fade on you and they would fade up behind the scrim and the scenery of the village would disappear. And you could see fully behind the scrim the action of that secondary scene. That's really what we have here described for us back and forth, front stage to backstage from chapter 1 and verse 6 through chapter 2 and verse 10. So as the lights fade on the front stage of Job's life from act 1, scene 1, if you will, that we've already studied, behind the scrim, the stage is lit to reveal activity that Job is completely unaware is happening. Satan appears in heaven with other fallen angels. He's asked a question from familiar company of his, the Lord. From where do you come? And Satan answers, as was read earlier. He comes from walking to and fro throughout the earth. And God asked him, have you considered my servant Job for there's no one like him in all the earth? And Satan asks a question, does Job fear God for nothing? Here Satan intimates that Job's faithfulness to God is bound up in what God has given him. He's accusing Job of being an idolater. Consider what Satan says in verse 11. He's saying it's Job's family, it's Job's stuff, it's his things, it's his position in the community. That Satan is saying he values the most. 
Herein lies proof of Satan's accusatory work of a believer even before the person of the Lord who omnisciently knows all. God asked Satan to consider Job for Job is a trophy of God, a model of faith and spiritual integrity. God knows who Job values the most. God knows what the outcome of true faith will be after Job is afflicted. Only God demands of Satan that he not physically afflict Job in any way at this particular time. And Satan, it's a hard word for me to say here, but it's in the text. Satan obeys God. He departs from the presence of the Lord to do the Lord's bidding. It is a blessing for us to know that Satan can do nothing to us without the permission of our Father. The affliction God allows will never be too much to bring us to apostasy or to turn us away from him, but only to prove the ability of God's grace in our lives to endure. The lights dim behind the scrim and they come up front stage on Job's reality once again. With authority from God, Satan uses various devices and people to afflict Job. Consider the two groups of people used to bring initial waves of calamity to Job and his family. The Sabians took the oxen and the donkeys and the employees caring for them. The Chaldeans stole all his camels and killed Job's employees, overseeing those. So God allowed wicked men, known as marauders, to afflict Job's family-owned businesses. Another messenger informs Job that the fire of God So God allows Satan to use his own fire, God's fire. This would have been similar to the fire that comes down to Sodom and Gomorrah. God allows Satan to use God's fire to consume the sheep portion of Job's family business, both livestock and employees. Yet another messenger rushes to Job's presence to bring the worst news yet. Job's children are gone. All ten are killed when a great wind swept across the wilderness and the home in which they were celebrating one of the brothers' birthdays most likely collapsed and instantly took the lives of his precious children. This scene instantly grows from joyful noise to deadly silence. As the lights fade front stage, On the devastation, they fade up again to the heavenly scene. Yet a second council in heaven takes place after Job has lost his children and possessions, and by this time, most likely, his popularity. The wording of the discussion is almost identical to the first. Satan again accuses Job before the Lord in verse number four. Remember, he said, I'll... Get Job to curse you if I take his family and his possessions. And Satan's still convinced that he can get Job to curse God if he touches him physically. So Satan says, skin for skin, 
All that a man has, he will give for his own life for certain. Whoever put forth your hand now and touches bone and his flesh, God, and you'll see, he'll curse you. Satan is simply restating that Job's health is an idol to him. The only reason that Job's really serving God is because he's healthy. Even though he's lost everything and lost everyone except his wife at this point, he's still only serving God because he feels good. God commands Satan to again afflict his trophy Job, only this time physically. From the top of Job's head to the bottom of his feet, Satan gives Job's boils, blisters that open and get infected with dirt and worms. Job literally takes shards of broken pottery to scrape the infection out of those open wounds that cover the whole of his body. This is the first mention of Job's life partner, his wife. And Job's poor health is the last straw for her. Do you still hold fast to your integrity, Job? She asks. Curse God and die. In his agony and in his reality, feeling like he's about to take his last breath, he speaks to his dear wife so kindly. He says, you speak as a powerful word there friends you speak as one of the foolish women speaks shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity Job says something very endearing to the woman he's loved for life he doesn't say she was like one of the foolish ones She spoke as one of them, which indicates the pattern of her life was faithful as well. She had just had enough at that moment. Godly, but spent physically, emotionally. What a blessing to know that you can be godly, come to the end of yourself, and know God's grace is still holding you, Job knew it was holding him and he still gave credit to his wife who was struggling more than he that God was holding her. Job's now alone to mourn and find a way to simply muster strength to take yet another breath when he would rather have God take his life. As the lights now fade front stage once again, and both the scenes of heaven and earth fade away, a voice speaks to all who are left observing Job on this stage and the backstage divine heavenly realities. And that voice says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And the cosmic crowd of the universe stills and remains silent to ponder that amazing statement. 
As I said earlier, there's certainly something to be learned here of a spiritual nature and also a practical nature. I'd like to highlight a few spiritual, I guess we could say theological things that we can learn and understand and then conclude this morning with some practical applications of what we understand from this wisdom portion of scripture. There certainly is something of angels to be learned in the text, wouldn't you agree? Angelic beings, particularly fallen ones, and this is what we know of one of them, the leader of them all, Satan himself, that Satan seeks to destroy and devalue what we understand about the person of God. Satan seeks to destroy and then cause us to devalue what we know about the person of God. Satan is mentioned 14 times in the first two chapters. In the Hebrew text, he's called the adversary. Satan is the enemy of God, and especially is the enemy of, therefore, everything God's created. Our passage recounts Satan's answer to God when asked what he's been doing. And Satan says this, oh, just roaming, just walking around, just pacing throughout the earth. If the word were translated into the Greek language, we'd find something very similar in 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around seeking whom he may devour. But as someone has said, Satan is a lion on a leash. In our context, he does nothing of his own will ever to affect the life of one of God's own. The same author said that a Satan is a trespasser on the territory of another lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah who infinitely outmatches Satan every time. So who is Satan? Well, the text is clear, and a lot of other Bible texts are clear about who he is. He's one who scrutinizes and suspects our motives. He accuses while God pities and defends. Satan is a liar and a cheat, tries to change the rules and save his own face. Satan is evil in his designs all the time. Satan is always cruel, always cruel. God is always gracious. We see the vice of Satan most wickedly displayed when he insinuates that Job's faith is for pay. He believes that Job only serves God because God blessed him with riches and family and community and position in that community. You see, folks, I want us to remember that Satan's just an angel. He's a fallen angel. He's the leader of fallen angels, but he's just an angel. Even righteous angels still inquire and investigate of the glories of true saving faith, remaining intrigued and never fully comprehending how saving grace transforms a soul like yours and mine to live righteously. 
So both saved and fallen angels are still learning about the glorious reality of our salvation. Angels confirmed in creature holiness, they don't understand fallenness. So when they see that which is fallen restored by saving faith, to do that which is right, we'll look later in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12, they've been ever since the fall of man into sin inquiring, always wondering what this, this incredible transaction was that God has brought about by grace in the soul of any man to cause him to again live righteously. But think about Satan. He still doesn't understand. And since he's fallen, he's completely self-absorbed. He's the leading narcissist of the cosmos. He sees his reflection in everything he says and he does. So he truly believes because he cannot comprehend God's ability to transform a soul that he could get that soul to deny and to curse their creator. Satan says, does Job fear God for nothing? We saw that in chapter 1. You recall Satan's words. We've already read again, skin for sin. Skin? Yes, all that a man has, he would give for his life. You see, Satan is convinced that Job values possessions, position, and health more than he values God. Satan only believes that Job is holy for hire. It's pay to play in the sports world. Job is only righteous in his character because God has paid him to be righteous. If all these things are taken from him, Job's going to curse God. I just want us to stop and pause for a moment because all of us that have endured various degrees of calamity know what it means to be tempted by the fallen one to doubt God when it gets hard. That's human. That's human. As we wrestle through those times, as Job's wife was wrestling, right? As Job himself is wrestling, what we understand, it's the grace of God and only the grace of God that's able to aid us in our wrestling match with that Satan brought doubt. And it's the grace of God that presses us back to our highest understanding of value in our existence. And it's not in our children. It's not in our possessions. It's not in our position. It's in our God. It's in our But we do struggle, don't we? I think we'd all be liars if we didn't admit we kind of struggled from time to time when calamity comes. What in the world's God doing here? Or what in the world God allowing to be done here? Really, he's allowing possibly Satan, possibly not, to test the faith that's been gifted to us by God himself to prove that faith strong, to prove 
to Satan, who still doesn't get it, how glorious God's omnipotent hand is to save a soul from living an unrighteous life to living a righteous life. And all these things have been taken away. Job did not sin. All these things, he did not blame God. Satan loves to test what we understand about God and what we value about him. Number two, Job's saving faith does demonstrate how much he values God above all else. So this is what Satan attacks, and then this truth is demonstrated in the text as well. It is the work of saving grace that compels a soul to magnify God's worth his value. There is no one or no thing that Job values more than God. Job doesn't doubt God's integrity like Satan does. For Satan, Job's service to God is like a quid pro quo, a tit for tat, merely reciprocal relationship. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours in that mindset, Satan is completely valuing himself and his evaluation of God's relationship with Job and Job's relationship with God, but Job's value is God. You know, when calamity comes, our values are tested. Character values, yes, but also priority values. There are many virtuous things in our lives that are gifts from God and have value because they are from Him. But for Job, God, the giver of all those wonderful things, remains Job's superlative value. How patient God can be and God is with us as we seek to prioritize the gifts that he's given to us that have value because they're from him as he watches us be tempted to have those good and necessary things in our life become that which we value most. If I lost all four children today, If I was called by the Mentor Fire Department and while I'm preaching and in addition to losing my four kids, my house is gone. And then if I'm called later on this week because I just got blood tested for an insurance policy. And they don't take me on for that insurance, life insurance policy because my white blood cell counts up and I've got a terminal health condition. God gave me the children, God gave me the house, God gave me my health. But now they're all gone. What's left of value? Or could I say, who is left of value? 
Saving grace is proving that Job fought well in his life not to make his children, his home, his possessions, his position, his identity. And oh, how we live in a country where we are identified by what we have and by who we have around us exclusively so but Job knows that God's the giver of every good thing and that God the giver remains his greatest value you may ask why would God need to prove to Satan that Job values the Lord above all else I ask that question What does God have to prove to Satan? Why does Job need to prove anything to Satan who can't and won't understand regardless? The scripture has a glorious answer for us. One author said, Job stands center stage as his old world crumbles around him, but Job is not merely on the stage. Job is the stage. His soul is the arena of this cosmic struggle. Go with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. And when you're done there, hold your finger there and go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, okay? Ephesians chapter 3. And then 1 Peter chapter 1. chapter 3 and verse 8. Let's begin reading there, if you would, with me. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is that administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things for this purpose so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with all the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations, Paul is saying, on your behalf, for they are for your glory. And what's their glory? The demonstration of how much they value God as per their conversion, as they persevere through tribulation, And their glory is being able to demonstrate this value of God before an audience. Both an audience that they can see and an audience that they cannot see. Go over with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And verse 10. 
As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which they now have announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, these things into which angels long to look. It's no wonder in the context of suffering in James chapter 1 and verse 12, James was able to write, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. You see, angels are created beings, therefore they're always learning. Just as God teaches us, the angels are taught, we are taught. There's always more to learn for them, and they want to know, unfallen angels, want to know more about the glorious creator and how he saves. So God shows them about his own value by allowing them to see how God's grace tutors Job's heart to value God above all else, even though Job's fallen, yet saved by grace. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, where Paul says, For I think God has exhibited us, apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. The word spectacle here is the Greek word theatron. God's people are a theater stage for all the world, both seen and unseen, to see that by grace we value him above all else. So the world does observe that when it watches and scrutinizes the faithfulness of the saved who are afflicted. But please know, my friends, please know, my friends, it's not just people watching. It's angels admiring. And it's Satan frustrated. Your faithfulness, your loyalty to who you value most is the testimony of saving grace through your life. To the universe. to places and to beings the Hubble telescope will never find. That's our glory. That's our opportunity. And we know it was Job's. As we quickly rush to a finish this morning, we realize this thir third theological truth that the superlative value we place on God will help us have proper perspective on our own personal
calamity. Proper perspective on our own personal calamity. We spoke of Job's perspective earlier in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. There's one more particular perspective that I feel it's wise and necessary to point out in our passage this morning, too. You remember verse 21 that was read earlier? Let's go back to Job chapter 1, if you're not there already. Verse 21, what does Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job believed his calamity came from who? This is perspective of a different kind. It came from God. It came from God. Yet he remains able or enabled by grace to value God the most. And the only explanation is really saving grace. Job knew nothing of what was going on behind the scrim, remember? Yet it didn't matter to him the source of the calamity because he was able to process his reality to be exclusively governed by God alone. Job would have made a wonderful New Testament churchman. Consider what he would have known of Romans chapter 8. All things do work together for good to those who are called... Job would have easily embraced Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 if he was alive when it was written, trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean unto your own understanding. Don't lean unto what's in front of the scrim around you that you can see. Trust in that which you know is being governed by who and what you cannot see. Never forget that whatever God allows or God assigns Satan to do to afflict us, that Satan is limited. If God assigns, all the universe becomes a stage for you to show by grace how much you value and trust in God, and particularly his sovereignty. All around you and the angels that inquired to know the majestic realities of salvation become an eyewitness to the spectacle of grace in your life that reflects the superlative greatness of God in you and through you. Our sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ himself, was put on a global stage when he hung on Golgotha. Do you remember? On your own time, read Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, where it says, And it pleased his father to afflict him. So God, by the hand of Satan, is afflicting Job. He knew that in time he would afflict his only unique and beloved son for our own sin to show forth his own value in time as each of you would look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your own sin and by his grace allow your heart to be changed by Jesus. Where God's grace compels you to live a righteous life. To show people who you really value anyway. Oh, the eternal fruit harvested 
as the sovereign God of all creation paints the masterpiece of each one of our lives. If God allows calamity, his grace compels us to be pressed into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ, under the pressure of that difficulty. Now we can know how to better count it all joy when you fall into various trials. How? How? In trial. This one thing we do, we press toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Grace does this. Again, let's go back to thinking of the angels just for a moment as they were eyewitnesses of Job's calamity and then think of their waiting with bated breath and the greatest anticip cosmic anticipation in to Job's response to all the evil that had befallen him. Heaven's quiet. Job's ready to take his last and wants God to take his breath from him and the angel's just like, exactly what's happening. Names are just like what's he going to do? What's he going to do? Job doesn't sin with his lips. Hundreds upon thousands of angelic arms are thrust into the air with a loud cheer. Yay! Oh God! Sovereign one! Yay! Lord God Almighty! We cannot comprehend. We praise you. Job values you. And to this day, they're still inquiring how. How wonderful Luke 15 reads, right? When all the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner that repents. Why do they rejoice? Same reason. They're still trying to figure it out. Oh, wow. How can someone so afflicted, so ruined, still value God the most? You see, folks, your trial, your calamity, my trial, my calamity, each and every one of us is of cosmic importance as to the proper worship of God and the salvation of men. So whether in life or in death, God wins as we reflect his grace. Five quick, if you can write fast, five simple practical applications from these theological understandings. Okay. And by the way, if you're collecting books, commentaries on the book of Job, like we have, all many of us have been, um, if you find someone that has a proper hermeneutic and understanding of preaching of wisdom literature, um, you're already familiar with everything I've preached this morning. These five practical applications I would just like to offer uh, from my own study. Number one, God's sufficient practical grace in our lives will always be realized commensurately to the degree of the trial that we are living in. I'm going to restate that. God's sufficient practical grace in our lives will always be realized commensurately with the degree of our trial. You say, how in the world? I could never go through what Job went through and not crumble. 
And I get that, humanly speaking. That's why this is a supernatural realization. I assure you that if God allowed you to go through that, as you know the Lord, you would respond by Job because his grace doesn't work for Job any differently than it works for you. And that's why we value him most because only he could cause us to persevere through that. It's the same grace that God gave Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he's being martyred. How in the world do any of us muster up the, 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 the fortitude, the guts to be able to say, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they do? I think this is true. I've watched it be true in you. For some of you that are even now walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I've watched God's grace carry you, and there is no other explanation but for us to drop on our knees in that hospital room and worship God. Number two, God's grace is our tutor regarding how to love others when the fires of calamity burn the hottest. Guys, how are you tending? What's your tendency? Do you grow a little bit impatient with your wife when, you, when you're hangry? Right? When you haven't slept well and you haven't eaten and you're hanging out, life's a little stressful, bad hair day, for those of you guys that have hair. God's going to strike me with boldness this afternoon. That's exactly what you're thinking, right? Right? You had bad everything day and you haven't eaten and boy, it's really easy to be testy, isn't it? I mean, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. I, I'm pretty sure Job hasn't eaten well. You know, you don't eat when you lose all 10 of your kids. You don't eat when you lose everything. You don't eat when you lose your possessions. Right? You get medicated for that in our day. If you want to stay alive, you don't take your own life. I mean, Right? And then in that moment, his wife steps in. I just want you to think for a second, folks, how capable God's grace is to help you love when calamity's fires burn the hottest. I'll tell you what, that was the, one of the biggest convicting points of this whole study for me. Folks, I don't love as well, half as well as I should in moments when difficulties fires of difficulty burn the hottest. But God's grace teaches us that we can. Isn't that a blessing? Isn't that something to strive for in our growth in Christ-likeness? Look how Job loves his wife. Number three, God's grace teaches us to count it all joy when we fall into various trials can mean that it's okay to tear our clothes, scream at the top of our lungs, cried bucket loads of tears fall flat on our face in agony. And when God's grace is compelling us in that moment to find our greatest value in God, the Spirit of God allows joy to be coupled with natural agony and it's okay. God's grace does not teach us 
in calamity just to keep a stiff upper lip, to keep a smile on your face. There's no unrealistic human expectations that God has of any of you in that moment because this stuff hurts. It tears the human soul. God knows that. You're created in his image. And you look at it in verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. And what did he do? Folks, that moment of worship is a struggle. That moment of worship, he has no other place to go to find an answer. But in a moment of worship, if Job lives in a 21st century world and he's not walking with God, he goes, well, I'm not going to go to church. The walls will collapse in on me. <laughs> Job knows that that horrible moment, he's got to go to the ground in worship, in agony, because he knows who he values most. And he's got to, by grace, take advantage of that grace to pull himself together somehow get back to the right mindset but my friend counting it all joy as I understand the scripture has never not included tears and agony in any trial if you don't cry if you don't respond like this I would wonder what's wrong with you Honestly, before those who just walk through and smile and we would call it great champions of faith. Now, if you have the gift of faith, if you believe that gift exists, that's fine. I, I get that. But I'm saying 99.9999% of people are going to respond like Job did. And God says that's okay. He even says in the text, he didn't sin with his lips. So I want all of us to understand that. You may need to understand that if God chooses me to go through a calamity that's unexpected of this kind of proportion. I just want you to know when you show up at my door, you might not find a guy that seems okay. But you're going to find a guy that by God's grace might be flat on the front room of his study a hot mess. But in that moment, God's grace is doing something. It's pressing us to find out who we value most. And I hope it's not myself. Number four, God's grace compels us to trust completely in his sovereign choice and we can actually find rest there number five God's grace would have us fully enjoy his good gifts he grants to us all the while understanding the brevity of their existence verses one through five prove to us that it's absolutely okay to enjoy God's good gifts and to celebrate those things, to have birthdays, 
right? We remember Ecclesiastes study before COVID. The whole book's divided into three sections by one phrase, eat, drink, and be merry. Control what you can control. Trust in God for that which you cannot control. But you better enjoy life. It's 85 today. Go get a jet ski and get on the lake. <laughs> Don't fall off. The water's still 39. <laughs> right? Go have a ball. Do it with someone you love. Just go fish, go boat, go get a big donut from Biagio's. Do something. Right? It's very clear that God desires us to enjoy his precious gifts to us. But grace compels us to remember they have a shelf life. But God doesn't. God doesn't, okay? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for Lord, I, I have no... I, I just don't even know, Lord. I, I hope... We said what we said, and we did what we did this morning. I, I trust it was um, done with integrity according to the text, and I trust your Spirit helped us today. Help us, Lord, to rehearse and to remember and then to live these theological understandings, these spiritual truisms, and help us, Lord, to embrace these practical realities. And Lord, help us to not do either alone. Help us to do this with folks in our family, folks that we, we shepherd, folks that shepherd us. As we understand that what Shakespeare said in a practical sense is true in a spiritual sense, that all the world's a stage. And for us of spiritual cosmic proportions. And may your grace through us prove to all seen and unseen entities watching that we love you, we value you, and we trust in your sovereign choice for us. In his name we pray. In the name of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.